0: Welcome to this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, an interview with Jason Jennings, author of The Reinventors, How Extraordinary Companies Pursue Radical Continuous Change. On behalf of the entire Strategy Driven team, I would like to welcome you to this special edition of the Strategy-Driven Podcast, an interview with Jason Jennings, author of The Reinventors, How Extraordinary Companies Pursue Radical, Continuous Change. The Strategy-Driven Podcast focuses on the tools and techniques executives and managers can use to improve their organization's alignment and accountability to ultimately achieve superior results. These podcasts elaborate on the best practice and warning flag articles found on the Strategy Driven website at www.strategydriven.com. In this special edition podcast, Jason Jennings shares with us his insights on effectively implementing radical continuous change in order to realize the ongoing business growth it provides we'll explore the key elements to achieving continuous change and how to overcome some of the most common resistance factors. And so now, without any further delays, let's get started. We are privileged to be joined by Jason Jennings, author of The Reinventors. How Extraordinary Companies Pursue Radical, Continuous Change Jason is the best-selling author of It's Not the Big That Eat the Small, It's the Fast That Eat the Slow Less is More Think Big, Act Small and Hit the Ground Running USA Today named Jason one of the three most in-demand business speakers in the world Jason Welcome to the Strategy-Driven Podcast.
1: Hi, Nathan. It's great to be with you.
0: I'm thrilled to have you on our show. I really enjoyed your book, The Reinventors. And not only that, but I saw how I could apply a lot of the principles to the work that I'm doing as as I help companies implement change on a day-to-day basis. But I wanted to start it out with a framing of our conversation for our listeners And, and simply to ask you... You know, does a business have to undergo continuous change in order to be successful, and why?
1: Uh, great question. Uh, I would argue uh, yes for uh, several reasons. Uh, if if you take a look, Nathan, at the original list of the uh, Fortune One Hundred companies, uh, there are less than a handful left. There's there's about three, or arguably four. Now that means that 96 percent of the original Fortune 100 uh, have disappeared over the years. Now, now when you think about it, you, you have to beg the question. Now, why in the world did that happen? They they had the capital, uh, they had the monetary capital, they had the intellectual capital. Uh, I mean, to continue to change and improve or do whatever needed to be done uh, to ensure their continued success, and and, and yet they all disappeared. Uh, Thus far in our research for six books, uh, we have screened 220,000 companies, we have uh, built dossiers on 55,000 of them, and and we have never found uh, a a single case of a company uh, that has just uh, achieved a certain level uh, of of revenue and and, and remained static for for any significant length of time. Uh, It would seem that a company is either growing and going forward, uh, or they are on the road to irrelevance. And and the other big argument, uh, and we frame it in in Chapter 1 of the book, as to why companies must embrace constant change, and it's this. Uh, Companies have to grow to remain relevant. And uh, one of the big breakthroughs in the research for the book uh, came when I was uh, spending time with Mike Long, the CEO of Aero Electronics and uh, he has turned this company into a a huge $22 billion enterprise, and the componentry for for any tablet, any electronic device, passes through the hands of Arrow. Uh, He's built a remarkable company. And and I recall the day I looked at him and I said, uh, my God, I mean, you've got your pedal to the metal. I mean, you are growing. It's all about growth. You're inventing lots of new businesses. You're buying new businesses. I mean, when are you going to slow down? And he said, I can't. He said, we will never slow down. Uh, And I said, well, why is that? And I'll never forget his response. Uh, He said, I am surrounded by the greatest workforce uh, that I've ever had the honor to work with. And he said, here's what I can tell you about them. Every one of them wants a raise. At some point, they're going to want more money. At every point in time, they're going to want a promotion. They're going to want more responsibilities. And he said, if as a company we can't offer that, they are going to leave. And when they leave... Who will they join? They will either join my competition or they will become my new competitors. He said, so if you're committed to growth, he said, first you're committed to your people. When you when you find, keep, and grow the right people, that's what allows you to stay ahead of your customers' ever-changing needs. And that's, in the end, what allows you to stay ahead of the shareholder or the owner's wants. So, one, I to summarize, I would say... Historically, uh, companies uh, nobody's ever proven that a company uh, can exist uh, without continually uh, continually changing, and the reason they change uh, is to stay ahead of their customers. And the reason they want to stay ahead of their customers and they're committed to growth is because uh, they want to keep their workforce intact.
0: Now, Jason, in, in Chapter One, you also provided a series of excuses that executives and managers often use to justify little or no business growth. What excuse do you hear most frequently? And then can you debunk its
1: fallacy for us? Uh, Sure, I can. And uh, to actually begin the response, I would go back to my research for a previous book, uh, Think Big, Act, Small, which came out five years ago, but a fully revised and updated version came out uh, also in May of, uh, of 2012. And what we were looking for is we were trying to identify those American companies that had grown their revenues double digits every year organically for a decade. Uh, and uh, we studied 72,000 companies. Uh, we studied the 22,000 publicly traded companies and the 50,000 large privately held companies where we were pretty much assured we would have access to accurate financial information. And out of 72,000 companies, uh, I, I guess maybe I have a tendency, Nathan, to look at the world through rose-colored glasses, uh, but I thought, how hard can, you know, double-digit 10% growth be? I, I thought we'd end up with, I don't know, a 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 to look at. Uh, after 18 months of research, uh, we had only identified 120 companies out of uh, 72,000. And uh, then out of those 120, we went back to find out how many had increased their profits, double digits every year for a decade, and the number fell to 9 And and that's my way of saying that there's really only nine companies out there in America who have distinguished themselves as being in charge of of their economic future. Uh, What most companies do, uh, sadly, is is most companies serve existing demand in the marketplace. So if the economy is good, uh, they're doing robust. If a region of the economy is hot and they're in the region, they're doing well. If they've got a product that's hot, then they're probably doing well. But the moment the economy stumbles, or a region is down economically, uh, or the bloom is off the rose in terms of the product offering, revenues decline. Uh, so there's very, very few companies. So, so what we hear uh, the most, uh, the, the the number one excuse is, it's the economy will get will get better when times get better. Uh, but you know, in the past four decades, there have been seven recessions, seven recoveries. The only certainty is in the next four decades, there will be probably seven uh, or eight more
0: absolutely and in fact, I had another author suggest that we're headed for an, our next recession within the next seven years.
1: Oh, I, I mean, if you take a look at it, uh, we did an interesting piece of research uh, probably back in nineteen or two thousand and eight two thousand and nine. Uh, when we went into the throes of the Great Recession. And uh, the United States uh, has experienced 48 recessions since our founding as a country. So it's uh, (laughs) eminently predictable uh, that every five, six, seven, or eight years, uh, there is going to be a recession.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely true. Now, Jason, in the Reinventors, you present a series, and I'm calling them Key Elements. Uh, of Of course, they're presented by chapter for achieving continuous change. Yep. Would you just briefly describe what each one of those elements are for our
1: audience? Sure. I'll, uh, I'll do it as briefly as I possibly can. Uh, element number one or step number one uh, is making a commitment to growth. I mean, that's the only reason you'd have change. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, so if you if you make growth a guiding principle, what you then have to do uh, is embrace the fact that there is going to be constant change. You're going to have to constantly change in order to have constant growth. That was the first thing we found shared in common by all these remarkable companies. Uh, the the step number two, uh, if I might, as opposed to chapter number two, step number two, is, is we found in the part of these companies who have really mastered the art of embracing constant radical change. Uh, they seemingly are are very adept. Uh, at this whole concept of letting go. And and we found uh, several things specifically that they're very good at letting go of. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll share those four very quickly with you. Um, they're very good at letting go of yesterday's breadwinners. Uh, I argue in my teaching and in my speeches uh, that uh, holding on to what companies call legacy brands and services, holding on to these yesterday's breadwinners, has been the reason for the downfall of more companies than the external threat of competition uh, ever has been. So, one, they work relentlessly to let go of of yesterday's breadwinners, and they don't waste uh, resources trying to breathe mother's breath into something that was dead on arrival uh, a long time ago and really needs to have a tag on its toe and be in a sliding door someplace. Uh, The second thing that these companies seemingly have mastered the art of letting go of uh, is ego. Uh, when ego rules an organization, what happens is by the time information uh, reaches the person with the ego who is in charge, that information will have been so filtered as to conform to the view of the world uh, shared by the one with the ego uh, that they 'll never hear anything that they don't want to hear and so we found that uh, that that companies that run uh, with humility centered leadership at the top and And no great egos who are able to let go of egos where the boss no longer has to be the smartest person in the room uh, does well. Uh, the third thing uh, that we found that these companies let go of um, is conventional wisdom uh, if If all you employ is conventional wisdom, uh, the most you can ever hope to achieve are conventional results, and that's if the uh, wind is at your back and the uh, sky or the stars are in alignment. And, Nathan, the, the other thing these companies let go of is same old, same old. Uh, one of the things that we find uh, in uh, during the process of our research uh, is that uh, we would ask people a question. If it ain't broke, finish the statement, please. They would say, don't fix it. Uh, the problem is, in the American business model, uh, when we wait until things get broken to give them any attention, uh, and then we say, uh, Sandy, go and fix the supply chain, Harold, go and fix HR, Susan, go and fix marketing, we're essentially turning our people into firefighters. So in these companies that embrace uh, letting go, they are constantly asking the question, I mean, how can we constantly wring out more waste and make this better for every one of the stakeholders in the organization? Uh, step number three is uh, you have to pick a destination. Uh, Pat Hassey, who I think is one of the most accomplished CEOs of the country who stepped down last year, rescued and saved the old Allegheny Technologies uh, ATI, a company that the pundit said was on the way out the door. And uh, he told us during the course of our research uh, that a good CEO uh, has to be a travel agent. And I probably looked at him like I just fallen out the back of a turnip truck and I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, it's the it's the job of, of, of the CEO, the leader of the organization, uh, to pick a destination. And, and then invite people to join he or she on the journey to that destination and they have to make it, they've got to do a sales job, they've got to make it very seductive, it has to make sense and people have want, have want really have to get the place where they want to go to that destination and he said that of course you're going to have several people who don't want to go to that destination and those people have to leave the organization uh, he said because you, you cannot have internal subversion within an organization so it's the job of the leader to pick the destination Next, uh, the next step, number four, we'll call it, is uh, we call it kiss a lot of frogs, uh, but I now phrase it a slightly different way, uh, and that is this. Uh, If you're going to embrace constant radical change, uh, these companies make a lot of small bets. And at risk of mixing metaphors here, uh, I would argue that the only reason you ever need to bet the ranch is if you're about to go over the edge of a cliff. But if you're about to go over the edge of the cliff, the bigger question is, what in the hell did you do that got you in a position where you're about to go over the edge of a cliff? and we found that these companies that embrace constant change don't put themselves in a position of having to make one big bet to save the company. Uh, They are constantly making lots of small bets. When Howard Schultz came back as the CEO of Starbucks, the company had lost several billion dollars in revenue, and uh, he gathered 10,000 workers in New Orleans for a week. They rebuilt homes uh, for victims of Katrina, And, and, and here's what he said. He said, this company has never been about coffee. This company has been about you. Your growth. And the only way you can have growth in your life is if we have growth as an organization. And over the next 18 months, the company made a startling 150 small bets. And uh, when a bet would hit, like oatmeal, I mean, they tested in a Mm -hmm. couple of dozen stores. And take a look at what oatmeal has become. Selling between $2 and $3 for a serving of oatmeal, uh, the average store sells 25 to 30 a day. There's 18,000 stores. There's a nice $500 million in incremental revenue added to the organization. But of the 150 small bets they made, a whole bunch didn't work out as well. So great organizations make a lot of small bets. Step number five is answering the question, who stays, who leads, and, and, and who goes? And, and, and the people who stay and the people who lead, are on board the destination, they're on board the set of guiding principles, they are lifelong learners, uh, they're comfortable making a lot of small bets, uh, they don't exhibit a lot of ego and they are very adept at cascading the destination and the values of the organization throughout the rest of the organization. Uh, step number six then is, is getting and keeping everyone on the same page, companies do an absolutely Miserable job of this. It is the responsibility of the leader to be able to say, "This is our destination. This is where we're going. This is what we're trying to be. I mean, this is this is what we're endeavoring to do. And here are a couple of strategic objectives. And it's inexcusable. It's absolutely inexcusable that any organization, I don't care if they have 100 workers or if they have 30,000 workers, would not make absolutely certain." that every person within the organization knows and can recite the several key strategic objectives of the organization and how what they do, how the dots are connected between what they do, whether they're answering the phone, whether they're working in a lab, whether they're working on a sales floor, whether they're working in the line, whatever it is, how the dots are connected to the achievement of the big strategic objective. The Gallup Q12 survey, which is now asked, more than 3 million respondents in the American workplace, 12 questions about work, demonstrate that 73% of American workers say they have no emotional connection uh, to the company or their job. They're merely showing up. I mean, that that is absolutely indefensible. The next, step number seven, uh, we found is forever frugal. Uh, We were introduced to a concept called Jugad while we were traveling in India on, on the research. I was in a small little uh, village in the northern part of India, and I, I saw this vehicle coming toward me that was, um, it looked like a long ox cart, but it looked like it had a steering wheel from a bus and a couple of motorcycle engines on it and it two benches filled with people. And I said, What is that? And they said, That's Jugad. And I said, That's a type of vehicle? They said, No, 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 that's Jugad. And I said, what, what in the world is Jugad? And they said, Well, when you're in a rural village, I mean in India, You can't go to an auto parts store and buy the parts. One, you don't have the money, and two, the auto parts store isn't there. So Jagad is actually making do with what you have. Uh, As Mike Long, to invoke his name one more time, told me, he said, look, uh, it's the responsibility of every leader of every company to be constantly asking the questions of their customers. What else hurts? Uh, what, What other kind of an itch do you have that needs scratched? What is painful? Uh, What else maybe can we do to make your life easier to help your company achieve what they want to do? He said, by constantly asking that question at every level of the organization, you come up with nothing but opportunities. He said, then what we find is this we can actually address and create new businesses with existing resources. He said, most companies waste too much money, throw money at stuff. And he said, sometimes you have to put some money behind something. He said, but very often, You can help your customers solve their problems within your existing resources. And then I know, uh, and I know that you have a certain interest in this, uh, number eight is um, we found that these great companies routinely systematize Mm -hmm. everything. Uh, They figure out the best practice for answering the phone and that's the way it's done. They figure out the best practice for the questions that are asked in sales calls and it becomes systematized. They figure out the best way to deliver uh, the product or service that exceed the expectation of the client, and it becomes systematized. And, of course, there's always wailing and gnashing of teeth by people saying, oh, that's going to destroy my creativity. It takes away my freedom, uh, to which I would respond inside these companies with a real harsh, that is bullshit. When you take best practices and you systematize them across the organization, it frees up time and talent to do the most important thing that an organization can do, and that's grow. And that's where you get to exercise your creativity in the growth of the organization. And then finally, step number nine, uh, as we uh, wrap up the book, it's, 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 it's don't hesitate. And uh, we came across a quote that we could never find the author uh, uh, ever, and, and we, we studied for weeks to try to find the author. And uh, this quote appeared only uh, on, on one single magazine advertisement back in 1920 and I looked at the words and I went oh my god these are incredible words and the words are this on the plains of hesitation bleach the bones of countless millions who on the dawn of victory paused to rest and while resting died and so that final chapter or step number nine is don't hesitate just embrace it just do it let's get it on if it's worth doing, it's worth doing now, and it's worth doing quickly. So, I'm not sure if that's as brief as you wanted it to be, but that's a quick overview of the the nine building blocks, the nine steps, or the nine chapters in the book.
0: That was absolutely perfect. Jason, I work within a very risk-averse industry. Uh, I work with uh, nuclear electric generation uh, utility executives and managers. Right. And so as I read the Reinventors, the the challenge that I came across that I face most often is the one around letting go. Right. We just don't want to let go of anything. Right. I was wondering in your experience, which of those key factors do you find folks have the most challenge with? And then what is a, a practice or two that you see successful organizations take to overcome that particular obstacle?
1: Yeah. Well, we pretty much identified that uh, there are four main reasons that companies cannot or or do not embrace change. And uh, in in one percentage of the cases, there is a sense uh, of entitlement uh, that is very pervasive, which is, you know, this is what we do we 've been doing it for a very long time, and they act as though they have a right to continue uh, to do it you know ad infinitum i mean forever so if there's if there's a leadership team uh, or key leaders who have a sense of entitlement uh, you're you 're not going to find people able to let go, hence they 're not going to be able to embrace change and and, and so nothing's going to happen uh, the next one the next reason that people wouldn 't want to embrace. Letting go uh, and embrace change is a sense of of of, of greed. Uh, we have to remember, and uh, this this is going to sound like an indictment uh, of business owners and CEOs. And and I'm not a pundit who takes my time indicting anybody. I write books to try to help people. Uh, but the reality is is that the average CEO of a publicly traded company will now serve an office for somewhat just shy. Of four years, it's about three point uh, eight years. Well, if 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 you come into this office and you know that you're going to be there for a short period of time, uh, I mean, do you do you want to rock the boat? Are you more interested in rocking the boat and shaking things up uh, and advancing uh, uh, the the good of the entire organization, uh, or are you going to take care of yourself? And I I, I believe in, in in a large, and I will I carefully use the word majority of cases. A person uh, takes the reins. They understand they're going to be there for a short term, and they understand. And and what they do is they willfully set out to not rock the boat, enrich themselves, leave major decisions to those who are going to follow them. And and I I believe that that is sadly very very commonplace. Uh, And I remember doing uh, one story or one interview for the book, and uh, and this is again very common in business. Um, when you have what I would call short timers, I guess it's a military phrase actually, but when you have
0: mm-hmm. short
1: timers in charge of the organization, I mean, look for nothing to happen. Uh, I was talking to, I was spending a lot of time with the CEO uh, of a defense contractor uh, down in uh, close to Atlanta, Georgia actually. And uh, his office was filled with uh, model sailboats and pictures of sailboats and I said, oh, you're really into sailing. And and, and he said, yeah, I am. And I said, well, which one of those boats are yours? And he said, well, these two are mine. And I said, well, where are they? And he said, they're up in uh, Hyannisport." And I said, well, how much time do you spend there? And he said, oh, I I spend as much time as I possibly can. And I said, well, how much longer are are you uh, going to stick around as the CEO of this organization? And I'll never forget his words. He said, oh, he said, "Uh, you know, as long as they need me, I... I guess I'll just stick around to settle, uh, you know, to keep things uh, on a good straight line here. Well, look, yeah. his head and heart—I mean—is on his damn sailboat, and mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the, the 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 day that his head and heart were more on the sailboat than they were in the company, I mean, it was time for for him to be someplace else. So, uh, companies that are led or headed by short-termers or short-timers are, are are not going to embrace change. And then the other is there, there are just some people who are absolutely risk adverse? I mean, they're just afraid to do anything. And I mean, you certainly don't want those people leading your organization. So those are the four things that we find, uh, the the four different types and personalities of people leading organizations uh, that are are not going to embrace change at all.
0: Yeah, you know, I can really relate to that short-timer concept. And I see it even in my own industry. Uh, right, typically, uh, you know the time horizon for our senior managers to to change out, regardless of whether they're the c e o or, or a few steps below, is about two years, yep, and they turn over and yeah, I mean they it, one, it's the why should I incur all the risk right if it will be my predecessor that gets the gains if I'm successful?
1: Well, I don't know if you've ever heard that there's a delightful little story that was shared with me by a CEO of a company, and it did not make it into the reinventors. But it's, a, it's, a, it's yeah. the story of a brand-new CEO, and it could be brand-new leader. Use whatever word you want, but the story is told of the brand-new CEO. And it's his first day on the job, and sitting on top of his desk are three envelopes left by his predecessor and a short note. And the note says, welcome to your job as CEO. Uh, I've left three envelopes labeled number one, two, and three. Whenever you encounter a crisis or a challenge and your tenure could be imperiled, open up one of the envelopes. Well, things went swimmingly for about six or eight or nine months, and then all of a sudden there was some kind of fiscal crisis or a budget crisis or something, and so he went and opened up envelope number one, and the message simply was, Blame it on me, your predecessor. So he went throughout the company and blamed it on the predecessor. It was his fault this is happening, and and things settled down and were going well again. And About six or seven months later, I mean, there was another big crisis. So he goes and opens up envelope number two, and it says, announce a major reorganization. So he goes out and he announces a major reorganization, and things are good again for a while. Finally, nine or ten months later, there's another raft of problems, and he goes back and he opens up envelope number three, and the instructions are as follows. Write three letters. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I like that it's that's right. an excellent story well oh, not yeah. always
1: an excellent story but I mean we see it I mean we see it being played out daily Somewhere. in American business oh
0: sure you know I would argue that we train the workforce as well w- with the short timers syndrome of course uh, we You yeah, uh, know, yeah, I've had people tell me you know I've been here before you got here I'll right. be here after you leave yep. why change yep yeah yep so it, 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 it becomes an unfortunate organizational alignment in a way that we just don't want to get everyone on that, that
1: same page. Exactly. Yeah. And then there are just companies that do it so exceedingly well. And those are the companies yeah. that I get to identify. Those are the companies that I get to write about across a wide variety of business categories and types.
0: Yes, absolutely. In my
1: experience,
0: and... By the way, this is not what we publish on strategy-driven. It's just what I, I see, and then strategy-driven is is in part our solution to this problem. But so often I see organizations think, oh, a robust communication plan is how I get everyone on the same page and drive organizational alignment. We'll talk to people. And the, the talking alone doesn't seem to get everyone on the same page. Right. What do you recommend as more of a, a holistic approach to be taken to, to try to get folks all on the same page?
1: Well, I I, I have to tell you that I, I, I truly believe today uh, everybody operates with a pretty good bullshit meter, whether they even know it or not. I think everybody's got one and uh I mean, there are millions of messages being bombarded at us daily, hundreds of thousands of experiences we've had, and when that old v u meter peeks into the red, it peeks into the red for everybody I, I I don't think that people are easily misled or willingly uh misled uh any longer and And, and so, what I would suggest to you in the answer to your question is probably not the answer to your question, but it's it's the best I can do. Um, one of the things that we found to be very common uh, to all these remarkable companies that I've written about in the new book, The Reinventors, and then think Big, Act, Small, is an incredible sense of authenticity, and authenticity about the following, which sets them apart from everyone, and, and that authenticity is this. Um, the, the leaders of truly remarkable uh, fast companies, productive companies, companies that are growing, companies that are innovative, uh, do not see themselves as leaders at all. Certainly not in the contemporary definition of the word. Uh, they see themselves, uh, instead as, as stewards. And, but it's who they're a steward of. They understand that there are really four constituencies in any organization. There are the employees of the organization, there are the customers of the organization, there are the vendors and suppliers of the organization, and then there is the shareholder or the owner. And a good steward understands and recognizes that their obligation is to be a good steward for each of those four constituencies. When there is a sense of authenticity and humility about serving all four of those constituencies and making tomorrow a better day than today for all four of those constituencies, I don't really believe you need a hell of a fancy communications plan. And if you don't have those things, I don't believe the best communications plan in the world can convince people within the organization. I mean, uh, uh, that, that you're going in the right direction. I, I, I just don't believe it. I just don't believe that people are willingly or easily duped any longer. And So the first thing that I look at uh, when we're examining an organization is do they get this concept of steward leadership? Uh, does the CEO and the leadership team, do they understand that their role is to improve the fortunes of all the members of the constituencies? I mean, do they stay in constant touch with their customers by keeping their hands dirty? Uh, one of the giveaways is when you walk into a CEO's office and you and you see the love me wall. Well, the moment you see a love me wall, I mean, y- you know, you know, you got a pretender uh, in front of you. Uh, we didn't find one love me wall in any of the offices of any of the companies we identified uh, for the Reinventors or for Think Big Act Small. And, you know, that love me wall is mm-hmm. that wall with the pictures of them with politicians and their golf trophies and stuff we found that uh, that good steward leaders are so comfortable in their own skin uh, that they don't have to announce to the world uh, who they are. Uh, you know, in my last several re- years of research uh, for these last couple of books, uh, I haven't found one $4,000, $5,000, or $6,000 Armani or Brioni suit. Uh, you just find a lot of khakis and a lot of polo shirts, a lot of open-collar shirts. Uh, these people are just so comfortable with themselves. They have no need to announce to the world uh, who they are. So I think, the big word is stewardship. And, uh, and if you're a good steward of the organization, if your leadership team is composed of good stewards of the organization, you don't need a very fancy communication plan. And if you're not, you probably need a very fancy communication plan, but it's not going to dupe anybody.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Jason, I want to thank you, not only for your time, but for sharing your insights with us on effectively achieving radical continuous change. I thoroughly enjoyed your book, and in particular, I liked the action plans at the end of each chapter that provided me with real thought-provoking direction that helped me think through what it is that I would do to help implement change and move the organization forward. I sincerely hope our listeners will pick up a copy of The Reinventors,
1: and more importantly,
0: I hope they'll implement the change methods you've shared so to help their organizations achieve ongoing growth.
1: Thank you for having me today. And uh, I get a lot of requests uh, to appear in podcasts and radio programs and television programs. I was very intrigued by your name, strategy-driven, because in closing, I'll say this. Strategy trumps tactics every time. Great being with you. Thank
0: you. Thank you again for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast. I would like to personally thank Jason Jennings for being with us today and sharing his insights on effectively implementing radical continuous change in order to realize the ongoing business growth it provides. As always, we would appreciate receiving your feedback by email at podcast at strategydriven.com. If you enjoyed the show please consider visiting our website at www.strategydriven.com and rating us on iTunes. You can find more information about Jason Jennings and The Reinventors at www.jason-jennings.com Until next time, so long.